Last week, uh, as I mentioned, we started our, our series on the Beatitudes, and uh, today we're going to dive into Jesus's first Beatitude, and you probably know the words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I said last week, the Beatitudes are, are perhaps uh, some of the most revolutionary words of Jesus. They are upside down to our natural way of thinking, and I think they rightfully can leave us feeling a little bit puzzled, as we can feel uh, based on many of Jesus' words. As in Jesus, what do you mean when you say, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit? Uh, wh what do you mean when you say, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are you when people persecute you? How do we make sense of these strange words of Jesus? Um, Daryl Johnson has written a great book on the Beatitudes, and it's been a real help for me in this series. Uh, by the way, last fall, I may have told some of you that I had a chance to interview Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson has a great Bono story. He was actually invited. Bono is a Daryl Johnson fan, has read his books and, and, and listened to his sermons and attended one of his churches many, many years ago when, when, when Daryl Johnson was a pastor in Los Angeles. And the, the, the deal is, quick story, that Daryl Johnson was invited to come to Dublin. And if you're ever in Dublin, come and, and, and look me up. This is Bono inviting him. And he goes to Dublin. He's part doing this tour in Ireland. And he goes to Bono's house. And he's about to knock on the door. And he chickens out and doesn't do it. That's the end of the story. That was, Daryl Johnson was a hero of mine until that moment, you know? <laughs> like, seriously, how could you live with that regret? The, the what ifs if Bono had opened the door. But Daryl is actually, I believe, a wise man, and he's a, a, Bible, a good Bible scholar. And he, this book, uh, in the Beatitudes, he proposes two big questions in life, two of the most important questions that he suggests that we need to ask. One is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In, in Daryl's words, who is this Jesus who walks into our lives and calls us to follow him into a whole new kind of life? And then secondly, what is the good news that Jesus brings? What is the gospel? What is the good news that Jesus came announcing and preaching and teaching and demonstrating? Those are key questions, and it reminds us that we cannot separate the Sermon on the Mount, where the Beatitudes are found, from the preacher on the Mount. We won't get the Beatitudes unless we have some sense of who is this Jesus and his good news. Just what good news was he here to bring? And Jesus put it into one line. In Matthew 4, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' gospel is that, that God's kingdom has, has come near. Heaven is invading earth. It, it is a, a new day, and, and up there, up there is beginning to come down here. And so the kingdom of God is all about God reorder, reordering and, and restoring and renewing all of creation. And, and also, those who journey with Jesus can experience expect to experience an entirely different quality of life defined by this kingdom that is available here and now. And, and so the Beatitudes are this description of the kind of people in whom God's kingdom is, is beginning to take hold of, or people who have been gospelized. You know, the gospel, they're getting the gospel. It's beginning to get a hold of them. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when that begins to happen. Karl Barth, the great 20th century theologian, said, his words for beatitude for blessed was, you lucky bums. I like that. I think it fits. And so the word beatitude comes from the Latin word butis, 
which means blessed, happy, and is the Latin root for our word beautiful. Happy, blessed, beautiful are those, Jesus says, who are poor in spirit. Lauren Slater is a psychologist, and a number of years ago, she wrote an article in the New York Times called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. This is what she said. She said, studies in self-esteem all have the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than those with low self-esteem. Feeling bad about yourself, she says, is not the cause of our country's biggest problems. Uh, Jean Twen, she, she wrote a, a book called uh, The Narcissism Epidemic, and, and she was critiquing kind of an all-affirming, uh, never critiquing parenting approach or philosophy. Uh, self-esteem-based parenting is what you might call it. And she talks about how when, when parents say great job to every little act that a child does, even when they just tie their shoes, when a, when a parent gives stickers like good try, good try being a euphemism for you failed, right? When, when parents simply cheer all the time and never let their children sit in loss or failure, when, when a child receives a trophy when they got in last place, when a child receive, receives zero negative feedback ever, what, what Twenge says is the result of this is the child does not, ironically, feel any better about themselves, but they do feel more superior and more important than everyone around them. And that's not a good thing. Isn't that interesting? It's like uh, that family that you have to your home and, and they bring their kids and they are like holy terrors in your home. I mean, it's for them, the Tasmanian devil combined, right, in, the, in these children. And it is for them that it, the, the term uh, childproofing, you know, came about because you had to childproof your home before they came. And, and, and they come and they destroy some heirloom in your home or there's this big catastrophe, this mess. And the parents, they say something like, oh, they're so cute, aren't they? And you're like, inside, you're going, no, they're not cute. They're entitled. <laughs> and they're what's wrong with the world. This is what you're thinking inside. And you say, yeah, yeah, they're so very cute. Mm. And what these, what these studies and these articles and these experiences demonstrate is that, that what society needs and what, what children need is less self-esteem and more poverty of spirit. So what do I mean? Well, let's start by looking at what you might call a kind of portrait of self-esteem that we see through the, the tax collector and the, the parable of Jesus and the tax collector and, and the uh, Pharisee. Uh, it's found in Luke 18. You can turn there if you like. The Pharisee is really a picture of a, a type of person who is pursuing with all his heart self-esteem, this, this confidence, this sense of satisfaction in their own worth and, and who they are. And it says that he prays a prayer. But what's interesting is that it says he prays this prayer to himself. It's like this guy, uh, he's praying, he's in the temple, and he's giving himself a pep talk. And he mentions in this prayer God. He mentions God just one time. He mentions himself five times in this prayer. And he says, thank you, God, that I am better than everybody else. That's a good opener for a prayer, isn't it? Thank you that I'm superior. Thank you that I'm not like the robbers and the evildoers and the, 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 the adulterers and the tax collectors. I mean, I, I, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of, of what I get, and, and it's all this drawn-out prayer to himself. It's what you might call his 
self-esteem building strategy through religious excellence, through religious performance, through religious superiority, you might say. And, and it's clear why Jesus gave us this parable. It, it, it's, we're cl it's clear because in verse 18, Jesus told, his, told this parable, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Let me give you a modern day example. Uh, Kanye West, some of you would know Kanye West. Kanye is a very public figure and he's very open about his words. And so I don't think I'm throwing him under the bus by quoting him here. But uh, he says, he says, I'm gonna go down as a legend whether you like me or not. The Bible had 20, 30, 50 characters in it. Don't you think I'd be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? My greatest pain in life is that I'll never be able to see myself perform live. Boo-hoo. <laughs> he goes on, I'm the number one human being in music. That makes any person living or breathing number two. I'm the number one impactful artist of my generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. I, don't, don't you just get a little bit of the cringe factor when you hear that? Like, isn't that awkward? Let me ask you, why is that so off-putting, either Kanye or, or the Pharisee, what the Pharisee prays? Is it because they're so different than us? They're, they're so different than we are? Or is it because in some ways we are just like them? You see, you don't have to be a religious Pharisee, you don't have to be a, a Grammy Award-winning artist or songwriter to, to hang your heart on a boast. And that's what Kanye and, and the Pharisee are, are doing in their statements. They're hanging their hearts on a boast. A boast that you might say has become their self-worth, that has become their, their self-esteem strategy. What might our heart boasts be? Really, to discover that, all we need to ask is, is one question. Is, is what are my at least eyes? You know, I, I may never be a Grammy Award-winning artist, but at least I'm pretty. You know, or, or, or maybe I'm not pretty, but at least I have a, a good sense of humor. <laughs> or I may not be funny, but at least I'm physically fit. Or I'm not physically fit, but at least I'm in charge. Or, or I'm not in charge, but at least I have friends. Or I may not have friends, but I have a, a stable marriage and, and well-behaved kids. Or I don't have well-behaved kids or, or a stable marriage, but at least I was top of my class. These are all prayers to ourselves. You know, and quite honestly, we usually don't speak them out loud. We wouldn't verbalize them because we wouldn't want people to disrespect us. But these at least eyes are there. And I'd say that they're kind of in all of us in some way, shape, or form. They're part of our self-esteem strategy. That there are hearts prayers to ourselves to tell ourselves that we are okay. But here's what Jesus is after when he begins these Beatitudes. He's saying that the beginning of blessedness is not with the realization that we're okay, but with the realization that we are not okay. The, the, the beginning of blessedness is, is not becoming convinced that we're superior, but that we're just like everybody else. The beginning of blessedness is not realizing that we're strong and capable, but, but realizing that we're frail and that we're weak. And, 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 th and this is why it's such an important beatitude. I, I think they're in order, this order, for a reason, because this is where you got to start. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, this is the first step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Uh, there are two, two words in the Greek New Testament for the word poor. 
Uh, one penes describes people who today we might call the working poor. Uh, this is that person you know that they, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They, they can just barely make ends meet. They don't, after they pay all their bills, they don't have two nickels to rub together. They're, they're, they're what we might call the working poor. Then there's this other word, which is called pachokoi, which describes people who are so destitute, so impoverished that they're forced to beg. They have nothing, and they know they have nothing. They know it. It's this second word that Jesus uses in this beatitude, blessed are the absolutely destitute, those with entirely empty hands and empty pockets. These are the ones who they don't ask for loans, they ask for handouts. Why? Because they know they can't ever repay. They, they are absolutely destitute. They're, they're totally broke. And, and, and Jesus says, blessed are those who come to God with empty hands and empty pockets with absolutely nothing to offer. Um, you see, what the, the poor in spirit are, are, are those who, who know that they have nothing in which to kind of gain the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus says to those who understand this, to those who, who recognize this, he says, surprise, yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, in Luke 6, we get a kind of a repeat. It's not really a repeat, but a, another set of beatitudes. It's actually, you get four blessings uh, coupled with four woes or warnings. And they're a little different. In, in, in this first beatitude, I think probably Jesus said these things at different times, and so they're recorded differently. But he simply says here, blessed are the poor. He doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. And you're kind of going, Jesus, how is being destitute a blessing? How is actual physical poverty a blessing? And, and I don't know if anyone here in the room has ever been on the edge of being truly poor. I mean, maybe you have. Uh, in my own life, I, I can only think of my days in university as the terms went on, my funds were diminishing, and uh, it, it would be the case where I was doing laundry once a month. I was foregoing laundry so I could eat, and food was running out, and uh, I thought of myself as poor in those days. However, I had parents, and anytime I saw my mom and my dad, my mom would say, don't tell your father, and she'd slip 40 bucks in my hand, and she'd send me back with a, uh, a box full of food, and in my last term where I think I, I looked, I, I must have looked impoverished. My parents must have thought I truly was the poor. My dad wrote a big check that covered my, my last term's rent at my house. So that was taken care of. But that was my experience of poverty. But I think of my experience with true poverty. I, I remember uh, 18 or 19 years ago, Angel and I visited her family who lived at the time in Zambia. And I remember walking down the street and meeting beggars. And they're different than beggars here, who you see are all dressed, and uh, usually, even though they're, you know they're poor, uh, this person you know that they're not getting anything. There's no safety net. There's no family. Um, this blind person, this is all that they're going to get. They're going to live on whatever handout they might get. I, it, it's in those moments that you come across the truly, truly poor. And, and, and honestly, folks, I think most of us would not call poverty a blessing. We would call poverty, true poverty, a curse. And so is Jesus somehow turning things really upside down and now saying that poverty is, is somehow some condition that, that we should aspire to? No, I don't think so because, well, all through Scripture, as, 
as Daryl Johnson puts it, we meet a God who is the, the champion of the powerless. Throughout the Bible, we see a God who, who actually seems to have a, a preference for the orphan and, and the widow and, and prisoners and the aliens and the poor. Nowhere in, in Scripture is poverty lifted up as a, some, some kind of ideal condition. So why are the poor blessed in Luke's version of the Beatitudes? I think because of one good thing that can come out of an experience of poverty, and you might, might know stories of people you know who, who when they were in trouble, what did they do? They reached up. Why? Because they knew they needed help. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. The, the poor know they need God, and therefore they're more likely to live depending on God. Um, we live in a very affluent country, and we can be tricked to think that money solves everything. Um, it's interesting to me, uh, Alex de Tocqueville was a French diplomat and historian who traveled quite extensively in the United States back in its early days, in the early 1800s, and he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of history about the U.S. and so forth, and, and even then, in those early days of, of America's history, it was quite a prosperous nation, lots of opportunity, people were very wealthy. His perspective, Tocqueville's observation of America was this, he says, in America... I saw the freest, most enlightened men living in the happiest circumstances to be found anywhere in the world, yet it seemed to me that their features were habitually veiled by a sort of cloud. They struck me as grave and almost sad even in their pleasures. Interesting. Uh, we say we don't believe it, but we kind of secretly, I think, believe that money, just a little bit more money would make us happy. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what's that comedian? Uh, funny guy, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, yeah, that comedian who is funny, that, just that one, Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could achieve fame and, and wealth like I have achieved to know that it's not the answer. He discovered that it, I, I got everything I wanted in life and it wasn't enough, <laughs> right? They say money can't buy happiness, but you can give me $100 and it'll make me smile. I don't know if that's true. Jesus, in, in Luke's gospel, he goes on to pronounce a, a warning on the rich, not because they have a lot, but because the attitude wealth produces, the, the attitude of not needing God, of, of living independently of God. The rich, and that includes most of us in this room, have or think we have grounds for hope other than God. And what Jesus does, he comes and he switches the price tags. He says, it's the powerless it's the, the spiritually bankrupt and those who feel inadequate in the things of God. Any of you have ever felt inadequate in the things of God? Jesus says those are the ones who experience the, the coming of his kingdom. Now, it's helpful to remember that Jesus is um, both our answer and our problem. <laughs> Jesus is a bit of a problem for us. How so? Well, the Pharisee in the parable could go on and on and on about his spiritual achievements because he was only comparing himself to who? To other people. And, and, and here's the thing. Uh, you and I, we can always find somebody who's kind of worse off than we are, who behaves more badly than we do. Uh, James Boyce puts this so well. He says, you will find someone who is prouder than you are. And although you may still be quite proud, you will congratulate yourself on being humble. <laughs> he says... You will find someone who has strong fits of temper, and, and although you ha too have a temper, you will congratulate yourself on being more moderate in temper than he. 
Not so with Jesus. Start looking at Jesus. You start looking at his, his purity and his compassion and his integrity. The illusion of our righteousness kind of goes up in a puff of smoke. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, when anyone compares themselves to Jesus, we just don't measure up. I, th I think this is why we see Peter in Luke 5. Uh, he meets Jesus on the beach, and he, Peter famously falls to the ground and says, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. And, and, and Peter, I, I don't think he really suffered from low self-esteem for the most part. He simply saw the gap between who he was called to be, to be like Jesus, and who he was. John Newton had that kind of experience. It was after reading Thomas Akempis's book, Imitation of Christ, where he, he really got a, a long look at the character and nature of Jesus. It was then that John Newton recognized his own spiritual poverty. Even though he had been a captain of a slave trading vessel, John Newton thought of himself as being a pretty decent chap, right? It was a different day, I guess until he got a solid look at Jesus, and he would go on to write the words that we sang earlier this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And of course, there's Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount itself. I mean, where Jesus' words seem so out of reach to any of us. I mean, <laughs> we thought the Ten Commandments, okay, murder, don't, don't murder, don't steal. I, I, I think I can do that. Don't commit adultery, sure, okay. And Jesus says, well, it's not, not enough just to murder. Uh, we're called to, to address the anger that's in our hearts as well. It's not just enough to avoid adultery, but to, to not lust over other people. It's not enough to just ignore our enemies. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Who can live up to that? If we want to discover our true condition... Our, our poverty of spirit, we don't have to go far. We just have to look at Jesus. And Jesus would say, for the beginning of blessedness is not to suppress our doubts that we have about ourselves, but to begin to listen to the doubts that we have about ourselves. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I want you to get this as we're in this, the beginning of this series. Uh, this is kind of giving something away, but I want you to know this. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular are not a call to action. They are not a call to get busy, get religious. They're a call to a, a broken and contrite heart that the Lord will not despise. Um, there are a number of our, of, of our family here in the church who uh, have been through recovery, and, and they've gone through the 12 steps. And, and if you've been in that place, you, you might even have the book that, that outlines the 12 steps. And, and if you've been through that, you know that you can never forget the first step. The first step, step one, is admitting you're powerless over your own problems. You, you, you don't get anywhere, anywhere else in your journey to recovery without, without admitting that first step. Whether you're addicted to a substance or you're addicted to your own righteousness or your own religion. Martin Luther, you know, on his deathbed, you know, he was the, the founder of the Protestant Revolution and... and you know, a successful man of God, if there ever was one, and his last words on his deathbed was, we are all beggars. Now, how is this in any way encouraging? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> 
I like how Jack Miller put it. He says, cheer up. You are worse off than you think you are. And God's love is infinitely greater than you dared hope. Actually, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy and and poverty is the pathway to true self-esteem. Back to Jesus' parable, we have the tax collector who, in contrast to the Pharisee, it says he stands far off from the altar. He won't even lift his eyes towards heaven. You know, there's, there's no sense of, of I'm entitled to anything. He recognizes his unworthiness to God, and it says that he beats his breast, which in that day was a way of showing the brokenness and, and contriteness of your heart. And then he prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Actually, it doesn't say that. In the, in the original Greek, it says, have mercy on me, the sinner. He knew who he was. And just 10, 10 feet away, you've got this arrogant Kanye West prayer statement being prayed. And, and the, this tax collector doesn't criticize it at all. He, he's not even aware of the ugliness and, and darkness outside of himself. But it's because in that moment, he is so caught up in the gap. He's so caught up in, in the chasm between the holiness and beauty and grandeur of God and the sinfulness and brokenness and unbeauty of his own human fallen nature. And, and, and here's the beauty in this, the, the good news. When it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it is not an invitation to try harder. It's not an invitation to start pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's an invitation to rest, if you can imagine that. Uh, it's a reminder that the gospel is and never was intended to be self-help. The gospel is God helps those who cannot help themselves and who know it. That's the gospel. And, and then with this lowliness, with this self-understanding, a, a kind of confidence comes that you can't imagine. It, it, it's a different kind of esteem. It's not the kind of esteem that comes from within. It's the kind of esteem that comes from God. Uh, it, it works this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel, when we really get it, when we really understand it, it, it humbles us to the dust. And at the same time, it makes us feel like a million bucks. <laughs> and, and we have to see the kingdom of heaven is actually the end of, of the struggle for self-esteem because you don't need it. Because in Jesus, you have been deemed righteous. You've been de- deemed blameless, blessed, beautiful in the sight of God, not because of anything righteous you have have said or done, but strictly and solely and only because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, who paid our price on the cross. Um, I love when we take the Lord's Supper. It was great to do that today. And it it is a great reminder of all this, of, of just what Jesus has done and uh, I heard of a, someone at a church who showed up. It was their very first time at church, and they were having communion at the front. And, and they got up to the front, and they asked the person who was serving it, said, you know, does this cost anything at all? <laughs> you know, they're thinking, do I need to get out my wallet and, and, and hand over a 20 or something? And, and, and what's the right answer to that? Absolutely. It cost a whole heck of a lot. But for you, it costs nothing. It's been given to you for free. It's yours. You come without cost because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, which was a, a, a banking term that meant paid in full, wiped clean. 
and it can't be taken away. But actually, folks, it gets even better than that. It's not just our, our sins being paid for on the cross. Remember what the Father pronounces over Jesus at his baptism? You know, heaven kind of breaks open in that moment, and the Father says, you know, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. These, these great words of affirmation. I love the fact, by the way, that they happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry before Jesus did anything of substance at all. Like, there's nothing recorded of Jesus doing any good deed before he's had these words pronounced on him. He didn't go to the cross. He didn't do any of the, his teaching, all that kind of stuff. It's in this moment where heaven kind of proclaims this great words of, of affirmation. Can I say this? That if you are in Christ through faith, you're in Christ. If we're in him, that benediction, that blessing, that verdict, that life-giving verdict is yours. You are my beloved daughter or son in whom I am well pleased. It's in 1 John, I think it says that how great the love of God that he has lavished on us, that he has called us to be children of God, sons and daughters of him. We get the beauty, we get the blessing, we get the credit. It, you know, he gives us these words as if they were being given to Jesus himself, as if we had lived the life Jesus had lived. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take the hit, to take the fall, so that in him we might get the righteousness of God. We get the blessing. We get the credit. We get the, the praise and the affirmation and the esteem of heaven that Jesus accomplished for us. Why would we need prayers like, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men? Or why would we need our at least eyes when we've got that? We're told in the moment that we declare spiritual bankruptcy, in that very moment, we become heirs of the kingdom of God. All, all the resources of the king are ours in that very moment. We're paupers no more. I would say this with Carl Barth, you are lucky bums if you know that. Final thought, because of this truth, I, I think we, we're going to have to deal with this dynamic tension. Uh, on one hand, we're going to have to be rigorously honest about our, our weakness and our flaws and our shortcomings and our, our brokenness. And, and, and part of what it means to live a kingdom life is just to be very open about our bankruptcy before God, that we have nothing we can offer, that we come empty-handed with empty pockets. And so, uh, regularly opening up our life to God, not trying to hide our brokenness, not to, trying to hide our sin, but, but being real with God about who we really are, our, our anger and our jealousy and our envy and all these things that are there. But we do come, as we come to see our poverty of spirit more and more, as we turn to Jesus, what Jesus does is he opens up to us all the resources of heaven to transform us and change us and lead us into this fabulous, fabulous wealth of spirit. Um, there's this old Hasidic saying that says we ought to walk around with two pieces of paper, one in, one in each pocket. And, and on one it says, I am dust and ashes. <laughs> and the other, for me, the world was created. Paul frames the good news in just uh, these words in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's, uh, let's pray together. The prayer that the tax collector prayed uh, has become a prayer that's been said through the ages in the church. It's called the Jesus Prayer, and it's, it's on your handout this morning at the bottom. It just says, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord God, have mercy on us. Lord, we come this morning as we are. Uh, and we say we need you today, God. We have nothing to offer you. We, have, we can't earn this. We can't do anything to uh, impress you. Uh, we can't do anything to, to somehow achieve uh, our own sense of esteem without you. And so God, forgive us for trying so hard. And we just offer up to you our poverty today, our lives, empty as they are, broken as they are, we come. And then we thank you, Jesus, that, uh, that you pronounce this blessing that in our poverty, we can be rich in you. And so, Lord, help us more and more and more live into that richness, live into that uh, banquet, that, that uh, abundance that you want us to live into, that wealth of spirit that comes from knowing you. We pray, God, would you meet us and change us and lead us into that life, we pray. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.